Today's scripture reading is in Daniel first, Daniel 1, sorry, um, and I will begin. In the, year of, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and, the, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray. God, we desire to receive from you this morning. Would you speak to your church? We thank you for your grace, your faithfulness, your mercies. May we be reminded that you were the God back in Daniel's day as you are today and into the future. And we place our lives in your care. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you guys have noticed the same things I've noticed over the past several decades. I guess some of us have more decades than others, and some of you have more decades on me. But it has seemed to get a little bit more hostile at church. Um, no. It seems to have been getting more hostile in, in terms of just uh, how people are viewing Christians and how people are viewing the church. Um, I remember growing up as a kid when uh, teachers or Bible teachers would say, oh, we're going the ways of Western Europe and, and those sorts of things where cathedrals are becoming bars and restaurants and all these sorts of stuff. And um, Yeah, I have noticed that a little bit more. I don't know if you guys are f familiar with the roller, um, roller skate church in San Francisco. You know, that used to be a church. And um, now it's a roller skating rink, and um, it's not... A church. They just call it that because they wanted to keep the nonprofit status. Otherwise, the city wouldn't give them the permit to do what they want to do. So it's a roller, roller skating church, um, and I have friends that attend that community. Um, and then others that have become bars or restaurants. Uh, you guys know of the church property. It was a Methodist church on Alcatraz and Shattuck. It was this huge church. Um, and it's now like lofts. They, they've built these lofts there. And it's happening more and more. And I think um, Christians are getting a flavor of what it feels like to be a minority. If you haven't experienced that already because of your race or gender or otherwise. Uh, but if you've never experienced that, you, you're experiencing that now because of your faith. Um, but I, I need to remind us that this is not our home. 
that this is just a, a stopping ground for us. This is in our final stop, that, that we are sojourners, and this world is not our final destination. John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus said this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, if you were of the world. The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, when people think of Daniel, they tend to think, at least in my upbringing, that Daniel teaches us how to live in an environment like our own, uh, what we're experiencing here, uh, how to live in this hostile place um, for those of us who believe in God. But the book of Daniel isn't highlighting Daniel as it is much highlighting God. Daniel's highlighting God. The, the, the very same God of Daniel in 6th century B.C. is the same exact God that we have today, 2019. And the focus is on God who is sovereign even in environments that may seem that the world is in power, even though that is not the case, because God is in control, and we can place that faith, that trust in him, even when it seems that things around us are going against us. What is faith? Some would say that faith is believing regardless of evidence. And that is why so many people have a tough time believing in something like Christianity that requires so much faith because they think that we are throwing out science. They think we're throwing out progress. They think we're throwing out all these things. But I think a deeper, more substantive definition would be that faith is obeying regardless of consequence. That's the faith of Daniel and his friends, even though this is more about God than it is about Daniel and his friends. So let's just jump into the first two verses, and um, we'll, we'll move on. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his people. This isn't fiction, this is historical events. This, these are historical people. This took place in modern day Iraq and the Jews were under a foreign power, uh, Babylon. We, most of us learned this in middle school, I believe, when we talk about the Babylonian captivity, um, that this is history. And at the time, Babylon is the most powerful empire there and the Jews were held captive. They were exiled to Babylon and so this was prophesied to happen because of Israel's disobedience. And it was Nebuchadnezzar who besieged Jerusalem. The Babylonian king took some of those vessels from the temple, brought them to Shinar, the place of worship for the Babylonians, and placed them in the treasury of Nebuchadnezzar's God. When reading verse two, you'll notice that the personal pronoun for Nebuchadnezzar, his, is mentioned three times. And so the author here is purposefully emphasizing his hand, his God, his God. Because it seems, as you're reading this, that Nebuchadnezzar's God is more powerful than Israel's God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because if God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is so powerful, then how have these people been taken captive? Where is their God? Does their God even care about them anymore? What was the use of all the years of obedience before this happened if, if God's not doing anything about it? But the real question here is, were they obedient 
to God. Interesting and interestingly enough, it is actually the Israelite God who is in control and gives them over to Babylon. You look at verse 2 again, and the Lord gave, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That God did this. God is the one who let them take those vessels out of the temple. God is the one responsible for this exile and captivity. This is strange, isn't it? At least the world thinks so. Because the world would think, how can a God do that? How can a God allow that to happen? And the world explains things differently too because the world would explain this as the Babylons were the most powerful empire in the area. Of course they did it. They had a greater military. They had greater political ties to pull this off. But the Bible tells us that it was God, that this happened through God, and this is written to those who are in exile. Daniel is addressing those who are in exile and experiencing this and who are into the future like us. And it's a reminder that God is in control over all the circumstances of our life over their circumstances as exiles, that even these not-so-good circumstances, God is in control. Now you fast forward to uh, the next verse here, and it says, it mentions Shinar. Now why is this important? Where is Shinar? Because this is where the vessels of the temple were taken And in order to find that out, we need to turn back to Genesis. And in Genesis 11, we'll find out that Shinar is where the Tower of Babel was built. The significance of Shinar is that this is the place where there was this great opposition to the power, to the kingdom of God, where people defiantly attempted to build this kingdom up for themselves, up to the heavens to show God, we're in charge of our own lives. We don't need you. Look how powerful we are. We can do anything we want. And then you look to the 6th century BC, and the same thing is happening all over again. The 6th century BC was not the last time that people attempted to build a kingdom for themselves and to rebel against the rule of God. This has happened all throughout human history. It has happened over and over and over again to the very present day where people have continuously rebelled against God rejecting his sovereignty. And this is just a theme of our world. This is happening all the time. People always trying to show up God who don't want God to rule what is rightfully his in the first place because he did create all this. And in the 6th century BC, God gives them up to the Babylonians. Now why did that happen? Turn forward to Daniel chapter 9. It gives us a glimpse as to why God did this. Starting in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. And you skip down to verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. 
and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he has spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. They were exiled from their land, brought into captivity, and God used the Babylonians to show them what it would be like if people were to be left alone to rule over themselves. If this is how you want it, this is how it'll be. Now you go down to, to verse 3 in Daniel 1. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The exile happened in waves. There were three waves. This first wave is what is being described here and made up of Israel's most powerful and influential families, the, the younger generation of those most powerful and influential families. Why did they do this? It's because this is what all oppressive people do. They take them away to begin this brainwashing period, to brainwash them of all their Israeli ways, their, all their Jewish ways, and, and to bring them into these Babylonian ways. So first what they do is they separate them and they change everything around them. They change their entire environment. They, they, they change everything that would represent security or familiarity. And they would remove them. Then they would give them the best of things to coerce them that the Babylonian life is the best. This is what oppressive people do. I work a lot with sex trafficking victims and this is what their pimps do. You're beautiful. I'll buy you a dress. I'll buy you flowers. i give you the best of things. And they pull them away, they separate from families, they give them different names. Then it goes down to verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine he drank. That were to be, they were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. And then it goes through all those names. The Babylonians start this reprogramming program for the Israelites. And all that stuff that you guys learned about your God, we're going to re-educate you for the next three years. And don't think about that stuff anymore. Forget about that stuff. We're going to change your names. You're going to use a different language, everything. We're going to woo you into everything so that you forget about all of your roots. This is what oppressive groups do. Isn't this what gangs do? Right? Your name used to be Mike and now you're tiny. Like, you know, like they just they change your name. Right? That's what they do. This is what universities do. Not all, because I know a lot who have come to faith in a university setting, but I have to be honest with you, I know more who have left the faith because of university. But there are some who have come to faith, and I thank God for those college groups that are on campus, because my cousin was one of those. She was so far from God, didn't believe anything in God, and then she came to faith in college. But what happens there is that they attempt, attempt to change a Christian's worldview. And so all these things are being bombarded, they're bombarded with, but then that's also what campus groups do is they bombard non-Christians with their worldview. 
and then they challenge that, right? So, but this is what happens to groups who look to change the identity of somebody else. And it's really difficult to resist against relocation, renaming, re-education, because there's no family or community support to who they are. So the, the relocation's tough. And there's no temple to encourage their faith anymore. They, they no longer had their given names, which had some meaning to them. When they were given that name, they are given this brand new name. And they weren't educated further in the ways of the Most High God, but in the ways of these foreign gods, the, the Chaldean way. And it's easy to let go of this prior life when all of this is happening to you. And there's this one other thing. There was this big change the Babylonians enforced, and it was... The diet. Now at first glance, this looks like a good thing, actually. Right? To, to eat what the king ate, to drink what the drink, to drink what the king drank. I mean, if it's from my perspective, I'd be like, praise the Lord. Like, that sounds good to me. I, I want that stuff. This is the best of the best. So what can possibly be wrong with that? Well, for the Jew in the sixth century BC, a lot. Because they followed these dietary laws. So they couldn't resist what was happening to them. Right? They couldn't resist the re-education program of the Chaldeans with literature, language, philosophy, religion. They couldn't resist those things. They can't resist the geographic relocation. They can't resist the name change. They have to do all of these things. They have no choice. Because the Babylonians aren't going to bend on that. But here's this place where I think Daniel saw an opening to keep his obedience to God. Daniel's diet was a way to distinguish himself to belong to God and to act out of obedience. That maybe here I can resist. Here is where that remnant of where I can show that I am still for God. That I can do this part. Now the rest of Daniel's colleagues or com contemporaries probably went and they just started eating all the stuff because like bacon was there and it was just like whoa this is, this is glorious and like shrimp cocktail and whatever and it's like ah oh. but he's like no that's not verse 8 but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the eunuchs. You notice that it's the same God who gave Daniel favor and compassion here in verse 9. And it's the same God that delivered them to King Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim of Judah to Babylon. And one is for disobedience and the other one is for favor because of obedience. And he granted favor and compassion to Daniel for that obedience when he granted this captivity for the disobedience. Now who was Daniel? We're told in verses 3 and 4 that Daniel was from a noble family. He's young. He's good looking. He's smart. Competent. These were the brightest of Israel's youth. And out of the many who couldn't resist the ways of the Babylonian world stood Daniel and his three friends who resisted this worldly thought, who didn't let themselves forget who they were, that they resisted for God and God gave them favor. 
You see, it's, it is crisis that reveals who we really are. It's when things get tough that it helps us see who we really are on the inside, and those tough times expose our character. Now you think about the condition these guys were in. They are an oppressed minority in this foreign land where they are being brainwashed by these oppressors by a re-education program. Their names have been changed. Everything about their way of life has been stripped of them. They are exiled, taken from their families. But in Daniel, there's still this small resistance. Now keep in mind, Daniel is the one recording this, telling us this story. And the story isn't focused on Daniel's resistance. He's not focusing on like saying, check out how good I am. He is writing about God. God gave me favor. God gave me compassion. For the smallest resistance that I can give, he honored that. And the, the hero of this story isn't me. It's God. Amen. That God gave the favor. And it's not something that Daniel got on his own. Now look at verse 10. It says, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink for why should, we, why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youth who are of your own age? So would you endanger my head with the king? The chief eunuch liked these guys but he didn't want to be responsible for changing their diet and have the king say like, what's wrong with these guys? Why are they looking sickly? And then like, you didn't listen to what I said? You're dead. So he doesn't want to endanger his own life, risk his life because, you know, no. It's just because of what you don't want to eat or drink. Like, no way. And, and notice this. Notice what he, how he approached this eunuch. In verse 8, he said, He asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. I just want to point this out because I find this really interesting in how Daniel shifts his tact. And he's so smart because he was given favor and compassion. He's been given all this stuff. And so keep that in mind. And then go to verse 11. And it reads, Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in his matter and he tested them for 10 days. Now, what's the difference? How did he approach that chief eunuch differently than he approached the steward? When he approaches the chief eunuch, he talks about defilement. He got smarter. I'm not going to talk about my Jewish ways in front of it, even though inside my heart, this is why I'm doing it. But when I brought it up to the chief eunuch that way, he said no, because he wants to remove everything Jewish about me. So I'm going to use my brain and I'm going to approach this differently. So we need to do that as Christians. Sometimes we go guns a-blazing with the Bible and trying to talk to change the city for this or changing this for that and like lambasting people. You just got to use our brain a little bit. Right? Got to use some wisdom there. Because you notice that the chief eunuch said no. And he doesn't pursue it anymore because he knows that the eunuch thinks this way. So he goes to the next guy. And here's another thing about Daniel. Just because that chief eunuch said no, he didn't stop. He didn't say like, oh, forget it. It's, it must not be the Lord's will if he didn't open that door for me. How many of us give up too quickly 
when we have a conviction that this is what God wants us to do, and then you start doing it and you go down that road and then a door closes and you think like, oh no, that's it. Maybe you need to keep pursuing, be persistent, keep faithful, keep going at it. Because if he let Ashpenaz just say no and that was it, then he wouldn't have gone to the steward. But he does go to the steward, which is a very courageous move because his boss already said no. And so he's gonna approach the next guy in command. And so here we can see Daniel and his friends putting their faith in God, not man, that it wasn't in Ashpenaz that they put their faith. And if the steward said no, I think Daniel probably would have just gone down the line and figured out a different way. And Daniel is appealing to the reasoning and the logic of the steward when, when he approaches the chief eunuch in kind of like a more biblical way. I don't want to defile myself. Forget your defilement. Go to the steward, hey, if I look better, then... Shouldn't, shouldn't you go for this? Yeah, that sounds good. So if he looks worse, then he can do whatever the steward wants. But if not, then let us eat how we want to eat. And then God comes through on this faith. Verse 15. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all of the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, God was at work in these guys because of their obedience. And so a question for us, and practically speaking, where are we in our obedience to God? Have we given up like most of Daniel's contemporaries have given up? Or are we like these four youths who found their way to resist the way of the world around them, even if it was in a small way? And in that small way, God gave them favor for that obedience. Now in verse 17, it reads, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And you'll notice that this is the third time that God gave. And in order to understand this chapter of Daniel, we, we have to realize that God gives. Verse 2, verse 9, verse 17, God gave. And it doesn't always seem like a good gift because he did give the Israelites over to the Babylonians. But ultimately, he gives good gifts. He is sovereign. He's in control. And yes, God gives discipline, which doesn't always feel good. He also gives favor and compassion. Verse 9. He gives learning, skill, wisdom, understanding, supernaturally. Verse 17. And in verse 18, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And so this is the end of the three years. And you can just imagine the chief, the chief eunuch walking in with these guys who he's presenting to the king. And he's probably thinking, man, this worked great. You know, the, the brainwashing program worked. It was so successful. And um, he just didn't realize God in, was in control of all of this, that God was still in charge of working out these purposes, that after these three years, the Babylonians must have looked at these four guys and think, you know what, all of our propaganda worked. The relocation, the renaming, the re-education, all of that stuff worked. I mean, look at these, these guys. And little did they know that they kept on to this remnant of resistance found in their obedience to God through something that was seemingly small, like their diet. But God honored that. God honored that small step of faith. 
Now, there are quite a few parallels between Daniel and Jesus. We won't go through all of them. I'm just going to mention a few. But Daniel was of this noble line, according to verse 3. And he was displaced from Jerusalem. He was exiled to Babylon. And if you think of Jesus, who left his throne in heaven to come down to this broken world. Daniel, who faced these many temptations, but committed himself to being obedient to God. Jesus, facing many temptations, but committed to carrying out the will of God, even though it meant losing his own life. Daniel is exalted for who he is, and he's used by God. Jesus is exalted to his rightful place for who he is. There are many more, but we'll continue on to Daniel chapter 1, verse 19. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. If, and if any of you are like me and spent a good time in church, you probably heard many stories about Daniel, and it's about Daniel. And people really don't really focus it on God. And some people even make this a study about uh, how to be a vegetarian or uh, not to drink wine, you know, things like that. Now, if you choose to be a vegetarian and abstain from wine, then that's good for you, like great for you. I just hope that you don't make like a whole theology about it and say that other people who don't practice that are sinners because you, you can't do that, right? Because um, I'm going to burst your bubble if you do believe this because Jesus ate meat and Jesus drank wine. So there you go, okay? But if those are the, you know, if you are a vegetarian and you abstain from wine, um, it's not sinful to live like that either. Go for it. Yeah, go for it. Just don't say other people are sinful for doing that, right? So, um, I, you know, I, so, side note, I'm still really amazed that my five-year-old decided to be a vegetarian. Like, I'm, <laughs> it's been over a month now. And I, I thought, like, okay, cute phase, right? Like, well, maybe a couple days. And then I'm going to put her favorite food in front of her, like dumplings or something. And she'll be like, forget it. Arr, right? No. She's, she's kept to it. Like, I, I'm amazed. And so, you know, we, we watch all these animal shows at my house because we like animals. Um, obviously not as much as her, I guess, because she's like watching them and she's like connecting these dots. And she's like, Dad, do animals die when I eat them? I was like, yeah, we... we you have to kill them. They, they're dead. And then she's like, I like animals. I'm not eating them anymore. All right. And so I thought back then, oh, okay, that's cute. Cute. Now I have to make two separate meals. Like every... <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, come on. So, you know, yesterday is like a stir fry. Like you got to do the vegetarian one and then the other one add chicken. You know, like... Anyway, I'm just venting a little bit. And that's not the main story of Daniel, right? That's not the main story of Daniel. There are people who make it about Daniel when it's not. And they say, you know, it's about having Daniel's conviction and his faith and his courage and his obedience and his trust and all Daniel, 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 Daniel. But I think if we were to bring Daniel up on this stage and he was to tell us, 
what God was telling him to write down on this, he would actually be embarrassed that people would make such a big to-do about him. And he would say, it's not about me, guys. This is all about God. My entire book is all about God. And the reason Daniel wrote it is to show that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That God sovereignly controlled Babylon even before 6th century B.C. Because even in the days of Moses, when they were in Egyptian slavery, it's the same God. That when he was there present in the 6th century B.C. and oppressed by the Babylonians, it's the same God. Same God in 2019. Same God well into the future. Same God. And Daniel trusted God. And that God from all the way then to the future is the same God who is proven worthy of our, through the thousands of years of recorded history, that he is worthy of our trust. That the Egyptians' gods did not rise above the God of Moses. That the Babylonian gods did not rise above the God of Daniel. That the gods of our time and into the future will not rise above the Most High God. They've all fallen. I don't know if you've noticed that, but the Egyptian empire is no more. The Babylonian empire is no more. I don't know how long the U.S. empire is going to last, but probably not as long as the Egyptians and the Babylonians. I mean, we've only been around 200 years, and they weren't a superpower for all 200 years. But all of those people who stood in disobedience, whether it's Egyptians, Babylonians, or some of the people in our world today, the Most High God still rules his kingdom today. And for any of us who feel insignificant at times, who feel like an oppressed minority, who feel that we have little to no value, God still rules on the throne. He still rules. He still gives discipline. But he also gives favor and compassion, learning, skill, wisdom, understanding. And he gives discipline because God is faithful to his children. Just like any of us parents. We do the same thing for the children that we love so much. We don't just let them do whatever. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And those worldly kingdoms, Egyptian, Babylonian, today, they come and go. But God's kingdom stands forever as we are exiles in this world. So let us be comforted and encouraged that this is not the kingdom God set up for us. This is just temporary stomping grounds. And he is in control. He's the same God of Daniel that we have today. And we don't have to get consumed with those temporary circumstances, even though they're terrible. Some of them are really terrible today. And he cares about those times. But Jesus is coming. And he is ushering in a kingdom for us. There's going to be a reflection question up there. That we want you to think about for a little bit. As the worship team is going to just kind of lead us in an instrumental time. And for us to reflect on this. But as you're reflecting on the 
question there. And that it's not about us part. We can get so consumed with that, can't we? Just like many of those in Daniel's day can be consumed with what happened. Our temple's not there anymore. And we're here. We're separated from our families. We're forced to do all these things. And they can make it all about them. God cares. But he's in control. And to look more broadly to God, at what God's doing. I want to pray. And then um, if the worship band can make their way up here. Lord, um, we ask that our focus would be upon you. God, that we wouldn't be consumed with the things that are in our lives that are happening, even though you do care so much and you do intercede on those things. But for us not to be so consumed with them that we aren't able to be of help to others, to be of encouragement to others, to, to look and to love and care about others. God, you give. And sometimes the things that you give um, hurt. But we know that ultimately you are in control. And ultimately it is out of your love and mercies that you do what you do. Pray, Lord, that our trust in you grows. In Jesus' name, amen.